This morning, we're going to continue in our series on Acts. And this week is an interesting week because of the elections coming up. And the idea of freedom seems to be kind of at the front of people's minds. And I, I just want you to take for a second and think through how would you define or describe the word freedom? What is that? What does that mean? What does that look like to you? When you hear the word freedom, what do you instantly think of? See, our culture describes it essentially as doing what you want when you want. That's how we would often see freedom. In fact, it's often viewed in terms of our own personal rights. And yet, freedom was never to be considered apart from the effect it has both on us individually and apart from how it affects those elsewhere. And so when we lack an understanding of the relationship Christ has given his church towards one another, freedom will be abused. As followers of Christ, we lack an understanding of the relationship that Christ has given to us for his church, it will be abused. See, our lives are not to be lived independently from one another, which actually is an American ideal that infiltrates the church, but with the counsel and wisdom of his spirit in the church. What we're saying is is that Christ actually, within and according to scripture, we need one another. And, And we're to see how our decisions and how our lives actually affect others. You see, as we saw last week, godly biblical counsel is needed when determining how to respond to issues of Christian freedom in the unity of Christ. And so this week, we're going to look at the second part of this chapter 15 and look at a counsel and grace, kind of the part two. And it's really one running theme through the entirety of Acts 15. So let's go ahead and read Acts 15 together. We're going to start in verse 13 and we'll run all the way through 35 here. And this is what it says. It says, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, as the, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the temp, tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and elders, and to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with the words, unsettling your minds although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray. Lord, may you implant your word on us this morning. God, may we take to heart the example that you've set for us through the Jerusalem Council, this council that was providing guidance to Paul and Barnabas. Father, may we see that your church is not something to be attended to, but it's one that involves tending to one another in you. Father, may we see that our lives are to be lived in relationship with one another and in your unity through Jesus. And so, Father, this morning, unify us. Father, help us see the power of your grace. And Father, encourage us through your word. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. As we saw last week, godly biblical counsel is essential to making decisions regarding faith and practice in the unity of Christ. Godly biblical counsel is essential to making decisions regarding faith and practice in the unity of Christ. Now, after Paul and Barnabas had returned to the church in Antioch, to share how God had worked through them to lead both Jews and Gentiles to faith. Verse 1 tells us that some men had come down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. And unless you're circumcised, they said, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Essentially, they believed that salvation resulted from faith plus works. And this leads to a major dispute, as we saw last week, between Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas are sent to the church in Jerusalem to, to get answers, to resolve the issue. And what we saw last week was that we're provided of an example of how to make decisions or deal with disagreement on matters of faith and practice, how we're to live out our faith. And we saw that they first sought godly counsel and then they studied the word together. And this led them to conclude that salvation comes not by grace plus works, but rather by grace alone through faith alone. And as a result of that, that there was unity with Christ and his truth, and that unity with Christ and his truth has to be the priority over and in all of our relationships. That we're not to compromise on the gospel, that we don't get to step back and simply say, listen, that's a non-negotiable. If somebody has the gospel wrong, then we get to stand quiet. The gospel is that it comes through Christ, through grace alone, through faith alone. 
so that no man may boast. So after Peter has stood up and he speaks of this issue of grace alone through faith alone, we're told in verse 13 that James stands up and it says, after they finished speaking, he replied, brothers, listen to me. Now James here is the same James that is Jesus' half-brother. He was a person that was respected by Jews and Gentiles. He was of Jewish descent, respected as an elder within that Jerusalem church. And the truth is, most likely, those Jews that were trying to say, no, it's faith plus works or faith plus circumcision, most likely they were hoping that James would side with them. And you can, for a moment, see that. Oh, we got somebody on our side. He's going to get it, right? Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And James stands up, and he says, listen to me. And without even, without even mentioning the Jews, he says this in verse 14. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. He then points out in verses 15 through 18, And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. After this, he says, I will return. And then he says, I will rebuild. And then he says, I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What was James saying here? He was saying that the prophets actually affirmed the decision of the council and spoke of the nation, specifically Gentiles, receiving God's salvation. The prophets in Amos actually spoke of the day that was coming where the gospel was being offered to the Gentiles. And what was not said is that those Gentiles, those nations, must become Jews. You see, salvation was not based then upon an ethnicity or a race or a people group, but salvation was based on those who, through grace alone, had faith alone in Christ. That's where salvation was coming from. And as Amos 9, 11 through 12 says, it says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. So, while James affirms the council's decision, he's also revealing the importance of Israel's role in the salvation to the nations. You see, Israel had fallen into rebellion to God, and as a result of their sin, Jesus came to restore a people for himself. And some of us at times can feel like, what really happened there? Did he really restore a people for himself? Is he still doing that? Well, this gospel actually starts in Israel and spreads out to the nations. And it's through Israel that the other nations actually receive Christ's salvation. Notice that what you see is you see 12 apostles following who are spreading out. We see 5,000 people come to Christ. 5,000 Jews bringing the gospel. And we see it going out amongst the nations. John Piper put it this way. He said, Jesus came into the world and began to gather a true believing remnant of Israel. First, there were 12 apostles. Then there were 5,000 converts to, in Jerusalem. 
And so it spread as God began to fulfill his promise to rebuild the dwelling of David and repair the ruins of his people. The purpose of these rebuilt ruins was not to hoard the blessing of God, but to make a way for the rest of men to seek the Lord, specifically all the Gentiles who are called by the name of the Lord. God's plan always was to save the Gentile as well. His gospel was for all who would repent and believe. The beauty of it is we see God fulfilling his word. But see, even though that grace alone came, comes by faith alone, the Gentiles were being told here that they don't get the freedom to forget the purpose of Israel. They can't simply write off the Jews who are struggling to let go of their traditions and walk in the freedom of Christ's grace. You see that? He, he's still pointing back, James is pointing back to the original purpose that Israel had, which is to reveal God's glory to the nations. And what he's saying here is, just because they don't quite get it yet, and just because they're struggling, you don't get the freedom to use your freedom to discourage them in their walk with Christ. And so what we see here is the first kind of truth in grace. And it's an essential truth. And it's the fact of this. Our freedom in Christ's grace was, must not become a stumbling block to others. Our freedom in Christ's grace must not become a stumbling block to others. He says in verses 19 through 21, Therefore my judgment is that we do not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but to write to them to abstain. And he lists two types of stumbling blocks. And this is important for us to grab. We can scream freedom in Christ all we want. And I, I, I often think that we, we, we can move forward and because we allow and because we're so focused on our own rights at times, we forget that God's given our freedom so that one, we might grow in him, that we might not be in bondage anymore. But God has also called us to walk alongside others in their growth. When God speaks about the weaker brother or sister, he's not talking about the mature believer that's trying to be legalistic. If you're mature in Christ, if you're growing in Christ, and you're trying to hold people to non-biblical standards, you're not the weaker brother. The weaker brother is the brother that has either has wrestled in temptation and struggled in temptation, and you see struggling in the battle and the, trying to, to, to come out of it and be victorious in certain aspects of their lives. The weaker brother might be the newer believer. The weaker believer might be the believer who's struggling to understand that it's not about works, but it is about faith, and that it is as a result of faith that then works arise, but it's not the works that save us. So there's two types of stumbling blocks. The first thing that he tells them to abstain from are things polluted by idols, from what has been strangled, and from blood. So three of the four things he mentions here are ceremonial rites. They're dietary restrictions, laws. The first stumbling block arises from a lack of love or selflessness. A lack of love or selflessness. It's not loving the other person more than your own rights. You see, when we we love our rights more than we love the other person, people will be hurt. Jesus loved people enough to lay down his own rights. One pastor shared it this way. He gave an example and he 
spoke of this, that of a letter that he'd received from a daughter to her parents. See, what happens, unfortunately, is that for many of us, we view it as to how it affects us. That when we live and live out our faith, we view it in context to, how's this going to disrupt my comfort or my desire? Rather than seeing that, guess what? Maybe the person that is, is, is wrestling with alcoholism, maybe the best thing for me not to do is to stick the bottle in front of them as I drink, but I've got freedom. Maybe it's the fact that as they're speaking here that there's confusion around these rites and this newer believer who's still trying to figure out how the traditions come together and eating of the, the idols, the food that was presented to the idols, they see as a violation of God's holiness and it's actually being violating their conscience to be, have this food placed before them. We, we are to look at it from a standpoint, if I love my brother and sister, I can set aside my rights so that they might grow in Christ. And, and this is not a manipulative ploy. Again, this is not for the more mature believer. We're told that there is a right way. There is freedom in Christ. Paul speaks that the stronger brother's way, the, the way that's being laid out in Scripture is the better way, but he says, for the sake of your weaker brother... Lay it down. It's the opportunity for them to grow, to not be a stumbling block in their life. And sometimes we just need the perspective that our lives are not about us, but it's about Christ and His work. It's about others experiencing the true love of Jesus through us. And as this pastor shared, he shared this letter. It's a letter from a daughter to her parents, and it begins this way. It says, Dear Mom and Dad, I just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy called Jim. He quit high school after grade 11 to get married, and about a year ago he got a divorce. We've been going steady for two months and plan to get married in the fall. At any rate, I dropped out of high school, she dropped out of school last week, although I'd like to finish college sometime in the future. On the next page, the letter continued. Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is false. None of it's true. But mom and dad, it is true that I got a C- in French and flunked math. And it's true that I'm going to need some more money for my tuition payments. The pastor's concluded, he said, news that may not sound particularly good sounds terrific if seen from a different perspective. Right? The truth is, if we can actually look at that and say, this is coming alongside, the reason I give up my right in this is to actually help others grow in Christ, my perspective changes. My perspective all of a sudden gets better because the cost is worth it. If I look at it in context to me, it's only about what I've lost rather than seeing it how others might be gained. Romans 14, 18 through 23 says this, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that cause your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. 
Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Romans 15, 1-3 adds this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What Jesus was saying was that he laid down his life for us. And we are to do the same. We are to bear with the weak. That's what he's saying. We're to bear with the weak. The second stumbling block The first arises from a lack of love and selflessness towards others. The second one comes from simply open sin and rebellion. Open sin and rebellion. So we can cause people to sin by not having a a really focusing on a love for others and, and not being selfless in our actions towards others, but we can also cause people to sin by just walking in open rebellion. This sexual immorality that's spoken of here, some of try to say that it actually violated the the marriage rights that were taking place that were provided in Deuteronomy. I, I think that the actual thing that's happening here in this passage is that the Gentiles were coming out of a culture where all of the temples had temple prostitutes. Deities were seen as something that was worshipped and they were worshipped through this, this giving in to the temple prostitutes. What they were being challenged with was a reminder to remain sexually pure, to not give in to immorality. That that immorality alone would violate very clearly for those Jews trying to understand what was taking place, would violate clear scripture from the Lord. And what he was telling them is this will compromise your witness. So first he says, don't provide a stumbling block that arises from a lack of love. And then second, don't provide stumbling blocks. It just comes from outright rebellion or sin. We need to be a people who realize that our actions do affect others. A young believer who watches us in sin and willingly and unrepentantly walk in sin will be confused. In fact, it will often cause them to reject the very truth that you're looking to proclaim. When I was in youth ministry, I'd have high school students that were very involved immorally. But they were also some of my most evangelistic students, the ones that had a heart to see the lost one. And it wasn't that they couldn't have failures or they couldn't struggle, but it was to say that the very people that they were trying to witness to were the very people who looked at them and said, I don't necessarily want that truth. I see the way you live your life. And that can be the true of many of us, that our open sin is a deterrent for others responding to Christ. Stephen Cole points this out. He says, We live in a day when many who profess to be Christians are ignorant of God's holy standard for his people. I've met college students who say they know Christ, but who do not feel that it's wrong to have sex outside of marriage. Divorce has become so widespread and even in evangelical circles that many professing Christians walk away from their marriages as if divorce was just an unfortunate event rather than a grievous sin. God's moral standards do not change over time or from culture to culture. We must not be so influenced by our culture that we violate God's holy standards. Right? 
And what he's talking about there is not saying that there aren't times at divorce that God allows for divorce in situations. What he's saying is the cavalier attitude towards it. The attitude that says, listen, I'm tired of you. I don't like you. I'm out. Or the attitude that says something like, doesn't God just want me happy? But rather not realizing that what God wants you is first holy. And out of holiness arises joy. God did not promise you happiness. He promised you joy. And they're different. They're subtle. Joy is lasting and not based upon your circumstances. It's based upon the peace of Christ at work in your life. That's joy. So what we're left with then is a picture of the unity in Christ that arises. Notice what this unity does. We're told here, that they come of one accord, of one mind. And so the first thing that we see here in verses 22 through in 28 is it says that it seemed good to the apostles and elders. They had already studied God's word with the whole church. And then he goes on in verse 8 and it says, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This was a group of people who had submitted themselves to God's word and the Holy Spirit's leading when making decisions regarding faith and practice. What did they do? They submitted themselves to God's word and the Holy Spirit's leading when making decisions regarding faith and practice. It was not based upon their own opinion and what they wanted to do most. In, in fact, I would argue that there are often times that we spend much of our lives going against what our first gut reaction is and patiently sitting back and going, all right, Lord, it's yours and my life is yours and I'll do it this way. But you gotta know, I don't like it right? Been there? I know I am. There are plenty of times where it's like, uh, I got to be honest with you, Lord, this stinks, right? This stinks. It would be a whole lot easier for me to just deal with it in this way. In fact, it would even make my heart a little happy and funny, right? Ever had that moment where you know somebody has said something to you and you just want to respond sarcastically, but you know it's not right? Where you could come back with a quip that you know is going to be not helpful to the situation, but inside you'll be like, <laughs> That felt good, right? Every time that we stop, that's the moments, right? That God wants us to be a people who are unified, who are submitted to God's word. A gentle answer rather than a harsh answer. Seeking counsel rather than just running and doing what we want to do, saying, listen, it's not, not your life. You have no business in my life. Well, here's the thing. Actually, as the body of Christ, we do have business in one another's life. We do. That's part of being a church. That's why we do things like church discipline and other things, because what we're saying to one another is that we're willing to fight for you and what is best. We submit ourselves to God's word and his leading. The second aspect of the unity in Christ is not simply that we submit to God's word and the Holy Spirit's leading when making decisions but unity in Christ also affirms God's loving work and witnesses his truth to the world. It affirms God's loving work and witnesses his truth to the world. In verses 22 through 29, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men from among the brothers, with the following letter. 
And then it says, since some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us to choose men and send them to you who themselves will tell you the same things. For it has seemed good to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. They're walking with one another in love. And it's affirming God's loving work towards us and his witness to the world. Notice how their love then is demonstrated through sacrifice. They don't just say, hey, listen, Paul and Barnabas, go back, deal with it. You guys were right. You're right. Go back and just be done, right? No, what they do is they send them back to the church of Antioch. This group of men is sent to Antioch to bring clarity. Why? Because it says to settle their souls by laying on them no greater burden. What did they want? They wanted to actually be in front of these people to bring clarity, understanding, to alleviate their conscience. Give them peace. One of the great tools of communication today is texting and email. But it's one of the most dangerous tools as well. One, with texting and email, you say things that you probably would not say in person. Secondly, it forces you into a one-way dialogue. There is a reason that God has us speak one to another. It's so that we can understand each other. It's so that we can hear one another. We can express one another. 28 years of ministry, I can tell you that I've dealt with more conflicts than I care to count that have come out from misunderstandings of emails or texts from different people to one another. And by the time that you get to help to come alongside a brother and sister and say, I don't think that's what they're saying. I don't think that's what they're saying. The hurts have already been damaged. It's been done. Part of loving actually requires us to be present. Part of loving means that I get to interact with you face to face. And sometimes, yes, email can be used. And sometimes text can be used. But we should be talking on the phone. We should be face-to-face. We should be having interaction with one another, not with just written words. God encounters us through his spirit and his word, a personal encounter with the living God through the spirit that lives within us through his word. We too need to take the time to be present with other followers of Christ and to hear from other followers of Christ. John 17, 20 through 23 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It is the unity of the body of Christ. It's in the unity of the body of Christ, the world sees his truth. We've talked about this before. Our unity as the body of Christ does not rise and fall based upon who is president of the United States. And if we show disunity, if we make the president of the United States our God, we will be disunified. We will look no different than the country we live in. But we are not to look like the country we live in. We are to look like the citizens of heaven, the kingdom of God, that has peace and unity in Christ with a group of people that have all kinds of differences but can sit next to each other and say, yes, I love Jesus, and we may disagree about how we get there, 
but we are unified in one purpose and for one purpose, which is the sake of Christ. Can you imagine what happens instead of Christians chirping at each other about politics? What happens when the church sits by and people recognize they have differences and they love one another and they sit with one another and they counsel one another and they stand and they remain in fellowship with one another? What that says to a world that divides over small, petty differences. And then the final thing that we see about the unity in Christ is this. Unity in Christ encourages and strengthens Christ's church in fulfilling God's purpose. Notice what it says in verse 30 through 35. It says, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement, encouraged and strengthened the brothers. The result of the unity in Christ is that it encourages and strengthens Christ's church in fulfilling God's purpose. When there is just unity amongst believers, the purpose of God is being thwarted. The energy of God is actually being thwarted. When the body of Christ is twisted up into disunity and division, the purpose of God is not going forward. It's being bound up. And we need to see that our unity is key. And so what we saw last week is that we need to be a people who are seeking godly counsel and studying his word. We need to understand that we walk in grace and that grace alone, through faith alone, is the source of our salvation. We don't compromise on that. And as we walk in grace with one another, we're not to be a stumbling block to one another. But we will be a stumbling block if we lack love for one another and we are selfish. And we will be a stumbling block if we're walking in open rebellion and open sin. And we need to know that unity in Christ, unity in Christ submits to his word and his spirit's leading. That's where it begins. And unity in Christ affirms God's loving work towards man, his loving work in our lives. And it also bears witness of his truth to a world. And then finally, that unity in Christ it encourages and strengthens the church in fulfilling his purpose, not our own. You see, when the church is unified, it carries out the function in that peace and joy, and there is nothing like it to a world that's watching, but there is nothing like it for us as well. Ever experienced unity with other people? Sit back in joy and freedom just to be the person that God's called you to be freedom to be transparent, freedom to be real, freedom to say, I need help in this area. I need prayer in this area. Help me walk in this way. And I need you to speak honestly and truthfully in my life and I'm ready to receive it. That's what God wants from us. And we need to see that when we're making decisions regarding faith and practice, we don't go to our own counsel. We go to godly counsel. We go to his word and we go to our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we might be strengthened in his unity. So may that be our prayer, that like the Jerusalem Council, we embrace the fullness of walking in his grace, knowing that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and that his unity actually furthers the purpose of his church as we lay down our rights for the sake of one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come to you in power. Thank you that we can come to you in the Spirit's power, knowing that you unify us, that there is not a division 
that arises that has power over his church if we are submitted to you. Lord, unify us. Unify your church each day. Father, may counts be short and small. May we see that you have given us your church for a blessing, that we're not to be something, a a church is not something to be attended, but it's something to be tended to with one another. Lord God, may we boldly proclaim your grace and may we boldly live it out, unified in you, not seeking what is most comfortable for us, but what is seeking what is best for others. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.